So does your career energize you with life or does it drain you? Recent Gallup polls show that a whopping 70% of us feel disengaged in the workplace. There's just gotta be a better way. Welcome to our authentic careers where it is my job to uncover the ideas and strategies that can help you become better aligned with your career. I'm your host, Gert Sabar, and I interview people like you and me about the twists and turns in their career paths so that we can all achieve greater clarity, meaning, and fulfillment in ours. So if you've ever wanted to know how Stella got her groove back in the 1998 blockbuster film, this week's guest could easily tell you since he both wrote and directed the movie. He totally could, but he won't because that, my friends, is not why I invited him to be on the podcast. But if you want to know how Kevin Sullivan first got and maintains his groove, then today you're in for a treat. What I love about Kevin's story is that it's built on top of an illustrious 30-plus year career in Hollywood. And the reason that's significant is because Hollywood, from my outsider-ish perspective, is truly a beast of an employer. Unlike a typical corporate job, where you can often survive and thrive on mediocrity and half-assed commitments, Hollywood is so very different. The level of clarity about and commitment to what it is you stand for, the level of clarity and commitment you have to have to that in order to succeed in the industry time and time again is unlike anything I've ever seen. And to boot, just because you did something great yesterday in Hollywood means almost nothing in terms of what your future might look like there tomorrow, no matter how high you've risen. And so when I think about all the lessons we've learned to date from the conversations I've had with my guests, I recommend putting extra emphasis on the lessons you can pull from today's discussion because it's truly a masterclass. Okay, so enough of me. Please allow me to present to you my conversation with Kevin Sullivan. Thank you for uh, taking the time. My pleasure. So Kevin, do you ever think about the concept of purpose or mission or even what it is I'm doing here on this planet? Oh boy, sure. Um, I do think about my mission. Uh, if it, That sounds a little grand, but I think that my job is about communicating the emotional truth to people and give them an access to their own emotional truth. Yep. Um, and so it's never been lost on me that there's a public service aspect to my job, even if it's just to give people a laugh or a tear or uh, a scare to uh, have a cathartic experience that allows them to breathe easier the next day. Yeah. You know? So yeah, it's never been lost on me. And it's always forefront in my mind when I'm working, actually, which is that my, I feel like I, I think about the audience every day. Yep. I think about their experience. I can never be motivated by just the money. Uh, it always becomes uh, about the person who watches and listens. For how long would you say that you've been aware or you've had this kind of sense of that purpose in your mind? 
it came pretty early for me, and I would say, you know, because I started professionally as a child actor, I would have to say it goes, goes back maybe not quite that far, but <clears throat> to my young adulthood easily. Yeah. You know, I always felt that it was just a, it was, it was too big an opportunity uh, to be played around with uh, once I got to the point where people were actually putting my words on the air or on movie screens. Yeah. And um, that's when it really started to become m much more about w what the audience was experiencing than, you know, whatever my own selfish needs were to express myself, if you, if that's, uh, if you understand what I mean. Absolutely. As an actor, uh, there's a, a it's probably a built-in uh, thing to be uh, fairly self-involved. Um, as a storyteller, if you can't get outside of yourself, you, you, you just won't make it. Your stories won't translate. People will not relate to what you're doing. You won't get hired for the bigger jobs. You have to get outside of yourself. And so once I started turning towards the other side of the camera, if you will, my frame of reference and my focus uh, broadened considerably. Kevin, for the benefit of the listeners, can you tell me what it is that you do today? I'm a writer and a director in film and television. Yep. And a producer of things that I am writing or directing in television and film as well. My focus is on the creative side, but producing is a certainly a part of the equation is sometimes you just have to take matters into your own hands to get the piece of business to work. Let me ask this question also from another angle, Kevin. Are you today in your career where you thought you would be when you were younger? It's always been an evolving thing, but yes, I thought I would be in the mix as a storyteller, yep. um, that that was where my future and where I really wanted to be. And so I'm still there. As far as the specifics of where my career is at the moment, it's changed and evolved over the years by, uh, by how the business has changed. Yep. And so some of it is really outside of my control. Um, uh, so I would say that, you know, if you asked me five years ago, <clears throat> or 10 years ago is probably a better number to put on it. If I'd be where I am today, I'd say no, because the opportunities have changed so dramatically. Let's step back a little bit. I want to talk about this idea of being a storyteller. When did you first sort of become consciously aware that that was of interest to you? I wrote a short story in the seventh grade that I knew was exceptional, and, and my teacher acknowledged it. My English teacher acknowledged yeah. it and said, boy, you know, I know you like acting and all of that, but geez, this is something special. And I felt it before I before she said that. And I guess that was probably the first real awareness that, that, the, that the mission was bigger than the acting thing, which had come clear to me. The acting thing came clear to me when I was five years old. How does that happen? It was the strangest thing. <laughs> We're doing, it was the kindergarten play, uh -huh. and um, it was the farmer in the dell, and I was the farmer. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, I was standing at the back door of the auditorium, and I was looking outside, and all my buddies were out playing basketball, and I loved basketball and my friends and all that, 
and I, I wanted to join uh, them for a moment, but then I looked back at the stage and I thought, I like this more. And that was the moment when I said, boy, this is really special to me. I really like this. At five? At five. That's an amazing realization to have at five. Here's the bigger one. So I had that thought, and not long after, within, I'd say, the next month or so, I had a clear thought in my mind, which was, just get better every day. Uh-huh. In those words. Amazing. Now, that's not a five-year-old's brain. At no. One. So, you know, I was raised Catholic, and uh, if you believe in God and you believe in spirit, Yep. That felt like a spiritual voice to me. And though interestingly, you had the capacity to hear it and process it. I did. And then I acted on it. Right. So from that point forward, I started watching everything that I could watch, reading what I could read. And I was, I was an early reader because my sister taught me in the closet in our very tiny apartment, how to read before school started, which I've always been grateful to her for that. And I spent time, while I was still a baller, basketball, football, track, baseball, I I played sports all the time. I was also reading and studying and trying to become an actor. And then I started hustling that. You know, I would look in the one ads, the San Francisco newspaper about you know, in the in the performing arts section, it was the, in the in the classifieds. It was number fifty. I can tell you that. Right. And I started sending pictures of myself around. And this whole thing, and my family was like, "What's going on with this kid?" <laughs> right. And uh, by the time I was eleven, I was getting jobs. That's amazing, and and really self-propelled. Self-propelled, completely self-propelled. My parents supported me. Yep. But they didn't do it for me. So you're having this kind of self-propelled childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're mm-hmm. uh, going on auditions. Mm-hmm. You're recognizing these aspects about yourself that you love storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, do you explore that further in in your schooling? I did. I was uh, academically advanced. I got a scholarship to a Catholic high school, all boys school, St. Yep. Ignatius uh, in San Francisco. And uh, a school with 1,200 boys, only 40 of which were black, like me. Yep. That was quite a challenge. Uh, But when I got there, um, you know, I I met that challenge academically and on the sports field. And then they didn't want to put me in their plays, even though I was working professionally. I had a local television show I was on every Sunday from the time I was 13 to 14. And so it made me an odd, weird kind of a celebrity of sorts at school, but somebody that nobody kind of liked that much. But I was the toughest kid you'd ever want to see. I mean, I grew up in the Fillmore District of San Francisco where if you couldn't handle yourself, you were in trouble. Uh, So I wasn't going to back down from anybody. I wasn't scared of anybody, and I certainly wasn't going to try and make the, the, the other boys at St. Ignatius feel better. Yep. <laughs> I was just going to do my thing. Yeah. And eventually, you know, uh, by the time I was a senior, they did want me in the school plays and stuff like that. But I, you know, I never, I never 
let any of anything like that slow me down, any sort yeah. of uh, negative energy. I just I would put my head down and run right through it. And uh, eventually it did become part of my education, but as only as a secondary level, because by that time I was doing, I was in the American Conservatory Theater's Young Conservatory, which is the big Broadway-like theater in San Francisco. You know, I was doing my own thing. So if you're having this experience that seems to be racially driven, is there an impact? How do you, how do you think back about that? Well, it's a great question. You have to think about the context of the time, okay? I graduated high school in 1976. So, you know, my experience of America includes being witness to the assassination of JFK when I was five. Yep. The assassination of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy when I was nine. The birth of the Black Panthers in my neighborhood. Uh, the Haight-Ashbury district on the, my bus ride to St. Ignatius went through that neighborhood. So what I saw was America changing right before my eyes. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, you know, it colored me as a, as a human being, obviously, and, and uh, my worldview overall. Um, and I would imagine kids growing up today, living in the shadow of Ferguson, have a, a different experience as well, and how that shapes them if they're black or white yep. or other. I think it had a huge impact on my my worldview. It certainly, you know, is the kind of stuff that you have to kind of grow out of as time goes on. There's the vestiges of uh, resentment and anger and things like that around the things that I saw. Yep. And it helped me be tough enough to handle Hollywood because Hollywood is not for the faint of heart. Right. When you say that, what do you, what do you actually mean by that? It means that you're going to be disappointed more times than not. You're going to meet people who want to challenge your uh, right to be in the room. Yep. Not even for racial reasons, although that certainly has been an impact, has had an impact on my career, but just because the margins are so tiny and there's only room for so many. Right. And so it's competitive and cutthroat. And uh, you better be ready to hang in there and to take a punch. Yeah. You're going to take some and then maybe sometimes throw some too. Yeah. And so when you are taking a punch, what are you falling back on? What is that thing that is getting you up the next day? What is that thing you're telling yourself that's going to keep you moving forward? You know, that circles back to what we were talking about initially, which is that uh, for me, I know that there's a purpose yep. beneath the surface to what I do. And I'm passionate about this work. I yeah. love doing it so it's really hard to root me out of the spot yeah how hard is it you've identified this purpose but at those moments in time when you're taking a punch how hard is it to fall back on that purpose is, is it so extremely, is it hard. extremely hard yep you know fortunately for me though i've got 35 plus years of doing it so i find my way yeah. You must see people coming in and out of Hollywood all the time. Yep. 
where are they going wrong? Those that take the punches and then don't, aren't able to recover. Well, I think a lar- to a large measure, the problem is in how they quantify their own success. You know, if they are looking outside of themselves for affirmation, if yep. they are result-oriented, I always talk to people about process, man. you got to love the process in Hollywood yeah. in this game. you gotta, you got to appreciate the doing, not necessarily the reward, because the rewards are going to come few and far between, and sometimes the reward that's right in front of you is going to be snatched right out from under you. And if you can't recognize that uh, the good in yourself, if you're waiting for other people to tell you you're worthwhile and you come to Hollywood for that affirmation, you are in big trouble. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, that's really the heart and soul of survival in this town. It really does depend upon the individual to continue to believe in the mission, in the, in the journey, and what it is you were called to do. So let me take this now from, from a different angle. You, you've had a blockbuster movie and you've had numerous successes. How hard is it to hold on to the purpose, the mission, at those moments in time? You know, I try not to get too high or too low. So for me, it's, it, it wasn't that hard to kind of hang on to myself. Yep. You know, I, I certainly, you know, it's, it's more fun to succeed. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's more fun when the money is flowing and the accolades are there and all of that. I had that experience. Yep. But I never really helped myself to get too high and mighty from it because because I was still operating under the same the same thing that I said that I heard as a little boy which is just get better every day so yeah. even at the highest of the highs I'm thinking mm, okay so tomorrow what am I going to learn what am I going to do better what's the next script and I and I, I you know during my highest moments I've I've lived by that can you tell me what kind of stories do you tend to write and what drives those stories? You know, I, I tend to start with theme, meaning I don't start with a plot or a character uh, or even a clever idea. I start with something I really want to write about. Yep. And then I think about the underlying meanings of the project and all the variations on a theme because, you know, one note is not a, does not a, a movie make. I will get motivated around the idea of, for instance, I have a, a, a screenplay about gun violence. Yep. And the two thoughts that I had about gun violence were, if you own a gun, it changes every decision you make in a crisis. Right? Yep. If, if uh, you can't pay your rent, if you're in a dispute with your spouse, if you are uh, despondent, if you are uh, desperate, if you're any of those emotions that everyone faces at some point in their lives, if you have a gun, your decision is different with a factor of one. If you don't have a gun, that's not in the equation, right? Yep. So when I started thinking about gun violence, that was the first thought I had. And the second one was, and this is more particular to me, but it's probably true for most people, which is if, a, if you ever use a gun, 
no matter the circumstances, self-defense or otherwise, your life will be forever changed once yeah. you've pulled that trigger. Who you think you are, from an external point of view, you might find yourself in a legal predicament, but even purely as a spiritual or an emotional place, a psychological place, you're going to be altered by the event of using the gun. So yeah. I, did, I then wrote a movie about that. So it started with me thinking about gun violence and then thinking about what the truth of gun violence was. And then I wrote a movie that takes all of that into account and more. So for me, it always starts with something I really feel passionate enough about. It, it's hard to build a good screenplay yeah. um, or a good story. And so when you are lost in the process of trying to get that done and you get blocked because you didn't have the story working the right way or whatever, you have to go back to something grounding that keeps you moving in the right direction. So that's why I start with theme because I always know I can go back to that when I get stuck yep. and get unstuck thinking about what it's really all about. Movie making and uh, screenwriting seems like such a long, arduous process. Um, and just to resuscitate yourself on a daily basis, you fall back on that. Yeah. True. And the other part about screenwriting is that it's about rewriting, you know, the revision process and screenwriting is mammoth yeah. and you can, you go back and back and back and back and do it over and over and over and over again because, um, you know, there's so many moving parts and there's so many different elements to it to make it work, both from a cinematic standpoint, from a story standpoint, from a character standpoint, from a theme standpoint. All those things have to blend for a successful screenplay. It has to be hit clicking on all cylinders. So you find yourself rewriting to fix certain aspects as you go along. And so you have to readdress this material over and over again. That can be really difficult to do. And the best filmmakers and, and screenwriters do that well. They, they rewrite as much as they write. The first draft is always kind of fun because, you know, it's fairly innocent. Um, you know, it's it's free. It's 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 a blank canvas, and you're just throwing the paint on, and you're doing your thing. But when you have to go back and then say, oh, well, you know what, the third act doesn't work so well. The climax isn't good, or uh, we don't get to the story quick enough, and so now I got to fix this whole big moving thing, right, to 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 make it work better and start over again on, on something that already exists, that's really, it's really the craftsmanship and the ability to identify the problems and solutions. That's, that's, where the, that's where the rubber meets the road. Did you have any points in your career, especially earlier on, where you didn't have a good grasp of this particular part of the process and you thought, <laughs> ever thought about, um, you know, uh, <laughs> jumping jumping ship oh heck yeah uh last week i think it was <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah i think the hardest part when i decided that i was going to really try to become you know a great screenwriter the hardest thing to learn was problem solving yeah. and 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 how to not quit because yeah. it's so daunting at times and young writers really struggle with that and I can tell you that unfortunately the only way you get to be a problem a good problem solver as a screenwriter is by experience you have yeah. to do it a bunch of times 
And then you then, you know, now when I run into a problem in a story, there's a lot of signposts along the way that say, yo, you've seen this before, or hey, this is how you handled that before, or you know, you gotta keep working at this. This is the it's the problems over here, not over there. You know, yeah. Uh, if you were to take a helicopter view of a screenplay, you know there are all these points along the way, and as you look down at them, if you have experience, you, you can you can probably see the red flag a little quicker. Yep. And when you don't have experience, you got to get all in the mess. Right. Down there, in there, right until you find it and yeah you, and then you then you can fix it and and move on but for a new screen writer who hasn't had any successes and who is writing their their script and they are deep down in the mess and they are about to jump ship and they don't even have a taste of what success can look like what keeps them going or what advice would you even give them to keep them going it's beautiful on the other side. That's what I'd say. On the other side of completing. Correct. Yep. It's beautiful on the other side. Yeah. I'll tell you my first screenplay experience, and maybe that'll help illuminate the point. I was 21. I'd written a couple of plays. I'd written lots of short stories. And I wanted to try a screenplay. Uh, and I was motivated by the sudden, surprising death of a friend who was 25 at the time. Wow. And someone, not just a friend, who I was super, super close to. I was 20. He was 25, correct. He died suddenly. And I'm living in Hollywood in a really crappy apartment, just hanging on, working a graveyard shift at a place called More Signal, where you watch people's alarms at their house. Right. <laughs> like $6 an hour. You know, it was that kind of life, right? Yep. Eat, eat, eating cabbage and sausage, like, I would make it on Sundays so I could eat it for four nights a week and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. That was, that's real talk. So he, he passes away. I'm just freaked out. Don't know anyone else in L.A. I'm thinking about him all the time. And I one day start writing it with a pencil on a yellow legal pad. And in 17 days, I'd written a finished screenplay. Wow. And I took it to a typing service. They typed it up for me. And some people read it and gave me good feedback that helped me uh, feel motivated to keep going and try a second screenplay, which started my career. Yeah. This screenplay did. But the point I'm making is that when I got to the end of that 17th day and I had written 120 pages, I thought I could conquer the world. Yeah. The feeling was so exhilarating. Biggest high I've ever had and the best drug ever because I've never I could I can't give it up now. Yeah, yeah. That feeling is extraordinary. Yes. Um that you can your brain, your spirit, your heart can create a world. It may not be great, but it it can complete something of that size, man. I don't know. I, I, like I said, I can't think of anything better. And even today, and I've written lots and lots of screenplays and teleplays over the years, every time I finish one, it's the same feeling. Yeah. Are there 
Kevin, any career decisions that you would, t- uh, looking back, that you would choose to undo or somehow redo? Sure. Sometimes there have been opportunities that creatively weren't as satisfying that might have made me more financially secure that I probably would have just said, you know what, do this one and pick up the creative issue later. Yep. But because I think that when you take a long view, sometimes you got to try to secure your family's security. Yep. And let the let the creative ambition wait a beat because it's going to be there. So that would be the only thing. Uh, there were times when I let stuff, I walked away from stuff because I didn't like it. And I, then I can go back and think, you know, it wasn't that bad. Right, right. And on the flip side, are there any, um, what would you consider to be the highlight of your career to date? Uh, I made a movie called Soul of the Game for HBO, which was critically acclaimed, and I thought and still today stands up as a strong movie. And then I went from that to How Stella Got Her Groove Back as my next film. And I think creatively, those two pictures back-to-back were exceptional. And I say that, you know, they, they were acclaimed, but I say that from the standpoint, uh, from the uh from the aspect of the audience of what we talked about earlier, which is yep. who I, who I feel I work for, you know, my favorite story uh, about Stella was uh, one night I'm having coffee with a group of people. And uh, this is years later. And we're sitting at a place called Cow's End in the Marina, right? Yep. And everybody's just sitting outside in a chat and no one knows anybody. We're all just, neighborhood folks having a cup of tea, a cup of coffee. And there's a woman there, she's she's a school teacher, she's British, and she's moved to LA because she wanted to make a difference to teach in South Central LA. Yeah. White woman. And she is talking about her commitment to these kids. And we're all moved by it. I mean everybody. It's like six or seven people sitting around. Yeah. And she says finally after she talked for thirty minutes and we we're all just, you know, wrapped yep she says to me so what do you do and i said oh you know i i I make films and she said um well what kind of films and i said well and you know i made a movie called how stella got a groove back and she starts to cry she Uh starts weeping and she said i watched it yesterday i own the videotape i've watched it 47 times when i feel bad that's what i do when I have a bad day. That's amazing. Well, for me, that's the ultimate success. Yeah. That's the ultimate success. How crazy is that to hear that? It was crazy, but yeah. so satisfying because really that's why I got here to begin with. As I said you know, at the beginning of our talk, I really feel like I've been given an opportunity to help people with their emotional needs. Yep. So to watch this woman who I was admiring for her commitment to education and see her have that feeling about something I had spent time on, yeah. that was, that was good mean, enough for me. That's amazing. And so last question here, Kevin. Knowing what you know today, how would you advise your younger self? I wouldn't change a thing. I, I, in, in the sense that I would 
tell my younger self to keep going. Yeah. You know, destiny is not something you can control. You know, I feel so blessed to be uh, doing this no matter the hardships, that this is how I ended up in my life. So how can I argue with the process? How can I argue with the journey? Yep. I'm still here. I'm still doing it. Kevin Sullivan, thank you so much. Such a fantastic conversation. Really, really enlightening. I'm glad. That makes me happy. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Our Authentic Careers with me, your host, Gert Sabar. If you like what you just heard, I hope you'll let your family, friends, and colleagues know all about this little podcast. And since it's early days here at the OAC, your rating and especially your review of the show on iTunes would also be hugely helpful and very much appreciated. If you think you or someone you know would be a great guest, please, 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 please don't hesitate to reach out at ourauthenticcareers.com.